Are we what we eat? If our diet changed tomorrow and nothing was familiar, would each of us be the same? What if everyone ate the same foods? Would various cultures continue to exist? This episode isn't as egg-heady as it might seem. In fact, it is a call to individuals to find their food voice, so to speak, and stand fast that your traditions are worth defending. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 141. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Libertarian, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Memorial Day weekend is just, well, a week away from this recording, so grab a copy of my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, and make some accompaniments for that smoked brisket and grilled chicken. Find the book on Amazon or buy it through the link on culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort. It's a solo episode today. I'm tackling a book review, Sydney Mintz, Tasting Food, Tasting Freedom, Excursions into Eating, Culture, and the Past. Sydney Mintz, M-I-N-T-Z, is an acclaimed anthropologist who wrote also about food and culture. This book, Tasting Food, Tasting Freedom, is my focus today with almost exclusive attention to Chapter 2, Food and Its Relationship to Power. Some parts of this chapter got my dander up. The book was published in 1996, which is relevant when I tried to push some of his content into the Great Reset Plans for the Great Food Transformation. It might be a bit of a stretch, but with the aid of another anthropologist, I think I have a decent chance. Mintz identifies two objectives in his chapter. Quote, I want to block out the kinds of constraints that can define the situations where people accept the necessity of changing their food habits. Then I want to illustrate how, having changed their food habits, People try to cope with the changes in their own ways by creating new consumption situations endowed with new meanings which they themselves have engineered, end quote. Those changing food habits come from power, writes Mintz, that is, governments exerting power and the rich exerting power, to support that power is the source of change, Mintz cites the use of sugar in 18th century Britain. Of course, we know sugar was once very expensive. Only the well-off, royalty and the wealthy, could afford sugar as a staple. Industrialization made sugar more affordable, and the proliferation of bakeries and the availability of tea made the use of sugar increase. So far, so good. That concept has played out again and again, from record players, yes, there was once such a thing, to autos, to computers. But Mintz restricts this to something he called inside and outside. Inside, writes Mintz, is, quote, 
the daily life conditions of consumption, end quote, and outside is, quote, the environing, economic, social, and political, even military conditions, end quote. Outside are things the general person or people can't control, such as hours of work, the work breaks, child care, and other factors that people must work around, even if there is fluidity in work meal breaks or in drop-off times at child care. Inside activities are those we do within the structure of the outside. Okay, so maybe listening to podcasts on the way to daycare and then on the way to work, but turning them off at work. Mealtimes at work offer little cooking space, so meals might be reheatable items from last night or some other accommodation for the rigid structure of employment break meal mandates. This isn't an odd idea. When I worked in corporate supermarkets, the break room had a microwave, and a long line of people, sometimes, wanting to use it. Sandwiches or salads were pretty common. Anyone who works has probably had a job where smoke breaks were regulated, lunch forced some compromise, and socialization was restricted. This also isn't a novel idea. What seems a novel idea is the demanding, as Mintz wants to do, that the adjustments in behavior have some great cultural significance. He writes, quote, the, This interior, embedding our significance in the activity of daily life with its specific associations, including effective associations for the actors, is what anthropologists often have particularly in mind. I think, when they talk about meaning in culture, end quote. His observation seems to be, we make adjustments to our daily lives for the other things in our lives. To call that culture seems either to dismiss the idea of culture, traditions and mores and faith-based practices, and accept everyone is the same, or that culture is meaningless except to each single person who creates it. I said I'm going to tie this into the Great Reset, and as Billy Mays once said, but wait, there's more. From our lunch hour or half hour accommodation, Mintz extends his idea of outside. Quote, in contrast to inside meaning, it is those larger forces expressed in particular subsystems, together with the state, that have to do with what I mean by the term outside meaning. Thus, outside meaning refers to the wider social significance of those changes effectuated by institutions and groups whose reach and power transcend both individuals and local companies. Those who staff and manage larger economic and political institutions and who make them operate, end quote. I've likened outside to production, and inside to consumption. I'm going to try to come back to that. One of my critiques of academia is the more incomprehensible the idea appears, the more weight it is given. Reach and power that transcends individuals is government. Larger subsystems is corporation or corporations, possibly working with the state to create this outside. 
1996, corporations working with the state as agents of the state may have been somewhat rare. In 2021, that's far more common. May I present the Biden administration? Of course, the current resident of the White House and the current circumstances are not the only time the government has had an impact as the outside on choices and then behaviors for the people. War, Mintz rightly points out, is perhaps the most significant outside altering the inside. Food rations were a big deal in World War II. I don't have first-hand knowledge of that, but I do remember my grandparents talking about their portions of oleo. From a food standpoint, from the inside, people's preferences and exposure to food was immense. Soldiers were very well off, civilians less well off. Now, I don't mean soldiers had it better, but that's just in the food option area. Soldiers from all areas of the U.S. were assembled and trained and courted and shipped and holed up together, and there had to be a sharing of culture. Think Forrest Gump and shrimp. Mintz points out one specific product which was made internationally famous due almost entirely to government's picking of winners and losers, or as Mintz put it, quote, subsystems together with the state to pick Coca-Cola as the preferred drink for U.S. soldiers. Now, I'm going to read a slightly long passage. Quote, Among the things that soldiers and civilians were not given was Coca-Cola, but careful arrangements were made to allow them to buy it. George Catlett Marshall, chief of staff during World War II, was a Southerner. It was soon after Pearl Harbor that General Marshall advised all of his commanders and general officers to request the building of additional Coca-Cola bottling plants in order to get the product to the front. By his letter, Marshall gave Coca-Cola the same status in the wartime economy as that occupied by food and munitions. Coca-Cola was thus spared sugar rationing. In all, 64 Coca-Cola plants were established in allied theaters of war, including the Pacific Theater, North Africa, Australia, and elsewhere. The Coca-Cola company was asked by the armed forces to supply technicians to run their production. 148 bottling plant technicians were sent. Three were even killed in the theater of war during World War II. End quote. That is a larger force the U.S. government picking a winner in the Coca-Cola company and the local governance in those various countries and the labor and the employment opportunities, but that's getting far outside the scope here. What is in line is to move for a moment to Peter Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread. Now, Kropotkin is an interesting person, even if I can't say his name. The conquest of bread is almost angering in its plain communism is the answer thesis. The inside-outside gets turned on its head here. To keep with Mintz's words, the inside becomes the outside, as Kropotkin writes, quote, and if the impetus of the people is strong enough, affairs will take a very different turn. 
Instead of plundering the bakers' shops one day and starving the next, the people of the insurgent cities will take possession of the warehouses, the cattle markets, and in fact of all the provision stores and of all the food to be had. The well-intentioned citizens, men and women both, will form themselves into bands of volunteers and address themselves to the task of making a rough general inventory of the contents of each shop and warehouse, end quote. Returning to Mintz, he cites anthropologist Eric Wolf's work, Facing Power, Old Insights, New Questions, and writes, quote, A fourth mode of power, power that not only operates within settings or domains, but that also organizes and orchestrates the settings themselves, and that specifies the distribution and direction of energy flows. I think that this is the kind of power that Marx addressed in speaking about the power of capital to harness and allocate local power, end quote. Mints can't escape that forces larger than the individual impact the individual. And the government we have in the U.S. to suggest otherwise is to be called a troll on social media. Of course, those few in power put pressure on the many. Duh! In Conquest of Bread, as Kropotkin wrote it, the individuals become the force and in so doing lose their identity. For you who have read The Conquest of Bread, you know there's more. Kropotkin, still holding his communist leanings but tipping an anarchist hand, happily dismisses any government as necessary for food distribution and endorses almost a barter system where the division of labor and specialization meet the needs of all and everyone has his portion of shoes and shirts and bread. Now, let's turn to the other side, the full force Mintz likes to the word power of governance as uh, of government, pardon me, as the outside managing all manner of affairs for those inside you and me. Enter Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset, and a bit more niche, the Great Food Transformation. Contrast Kropotkin's hungry, angry mob with the central planner of the Great Reset and the corporate partners, particularly EAT Lancet, for one determining what is in the best interest of all nations nutritionally. Sounds bold and daring, right? Such a statement must be hyperbole on my part. The EAT Lancet webpage reads, quote, The EAT Lancet Commission on Food, Planet, Health brought together 37 world-leading scientists from across the globe to answer this question. Can we feed a future population of 10 billion people a healthy diet within planetary boundaries? The answer is yes, but it will be impossible without transforming eating habits, improving food production, and reducing food waste, end quote. What is omitted on this page of, by EAT Lancet is the reduction of red meat production and consumption. Aside from the health benefits of red meat, consider the employment of those farmers and staff, and truckers and grocery workers and everybody else in between. 
if ever an outside was determined to fashion a kind of superstructure over which societies were to be fit and formed, this is it. I did an episode on the Great Food Transformation, culinarylibertarian.com slash 122. The goals are immense and include replacing real red meat with plant-based protein, a heavy dependence on aquaculture, another topic I've covered in an episode, and lots of veggies and fruit. Now, fruits and veggies are, of course, fine things to eat. Excluding meat protein and fat presents a pretty serious health issue. That is, in fact, another episode. I'll link to that and the aquaculture episode on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 141. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Mince, as an anthropologist, seeks meaning in all manner of things. Perhaps that's part of the gig. Of course, we as Americans do too. Thanksgiving, or birthday, or Christmas dinner, hot dogs and a ball game are all part of our dining culture and have, for the individual, some possible meaning. What is to be of all cultures when the central planner ignores the norms of India and Indiana? I accept this is putting the cart ahead of the horse, but only by a little bit. The World Economic Forum, the mastermind organization behind the Great Reset, would not delay in given a chance to do such things. Tasting Food, Tasting Freedom is not a libertarian book. I found it both agitating and interesting. It's a general public book. Not an academic book, but even there, it can be a little chewy. There is some good ingredient history, honey and sugar particularly, and an interesting discussion about what is or is not a cuisine. That may be an episode if I can find a food historian able and willing to chat. One significant omission from Mintz and The Great Reset is the individual. For the Great Reset, that omission is intentional. They don't really care about you, the inside. They care entirely for the corporations that will do the work for creating the structures, which will be the outside. More plainly, you, the consumer, are to obey. You will end up owning nothing, and in the words of Schwab, you will be happy. He says it like it's an order. Kropotkin acknowledges the individual and then puts them in a group to undo the structure of the baker or cobbler or tailor, to remove the linear aspects of these publications and focus only on the narrative. The defeat of the Great Reset is the same as the defeat of the exploitation Kropotkin identifies, and that defeat is at the hands of revolution. Mintz seems to confine the consumer to purchaser of things somewhat else aggregated. Quote, 
but it was the purveyor of the foods, the givers of employment, the servants of the state who exercised the power that made the foods available, end quote. Change, power, entrepreneurial spirit, and now that's aligned with writing and putting the focus on the person helping his community. And take away that part about the servant of the state. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll put a link for Tasting Food, Tasting Freedom on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 141, as well as links to the other two podcast episodes I did on the great food transformation and aquaculture. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and like it when you see it on your feeds. Rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher and subscribe to the show so every week it's just there waiting for you. Drop me a note for show ideas or questions or other ideas at podcast at culinarylibertarian.com. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.